Getting out of the military, I was missing this camaraderie. It's frustrating when you try and talk to people that don't understand. I still had the anger, I still had the addictions, but we didn't talk about that. Came to a point where it's like, okay, I really need to talk to somebody about this. Family more or less encouraged me, you know, go, go to the VA. It's okay to go get help. It's okay to talk to people, because it takes true strength to ask for help. Hear veterans' real stories of strength and recovery at maketheconnection.net. I'm Timothy Lawson, your host for This Week at VA. I hope everyone had an enjoyable holiday and that you are ready for a fun and safe New Year's. This is episode 11 and the final episode for 2016. Today's show will feature Blaine Smith, the executive director for Team Red, White, and Blue. I'll also highlight some ways you can stick to your New Year's resolution and how VA may be able to help. First, I want to remind everyone of one of the most crucial resources offered by VA. The holiday season is an emotional one and it can leave many people vulnerable to suicide. The Veterans Crisis Line is a valuable resource when yourself or someone you know is an emotional crisis. The number for the Veterans Crisis Line is 1-800-273-8255, then press 1. You can also go to VeteransCrisisLine.net and use a confidential chat straight from the website. That chat feature can also be used from a mobile device. The Veterans Crisis Line works, and I know because I contacted them when my battle buddy was expressing suicidal thoughts, and I used their chat service straight from my iPhone. Be there for our veterans, your friends, and yourself, and remember this great resource. Again, the number for the Veterans Crisis Line is 1-800-273-8255, then press 1. The feature interview today is with Blaine Smith. Blaine served in the Army after graduating from West Point. He was in the military when we were attacked on 9-11, and then he served overseas. Blaine is going to talk to us about his experience in the Army, his decision-making, joining Team Red, White, and Blue, the value his organization brings, and discovering a new sense of purpose. Enjoy. All right, Blaine Smith, the executive director at Team Red, White, and Blue, a West Point graduate. Sir, thank you so much for joining us on This Week at VA. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. One thing that I want to start this off by saying, I don't know anybody that's had anything negative to say about the organization, about their experience inside the culture, and it is probably one of very few veteran organizations that has a widespread, just great response from the veterans. And so I applaud you in, in leading such an effort, sir. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. We are, we are an organization that's just full of really good people that are, that are really passionate and committed to you know, helping veterans connect to their community in a positive way. And once the ball gets rolling, it's almost like a self-policing mechanism. I mean, we just have so many good people on the bus now that it really just continues to propel itself forward, and I'm, I'm very happy just to be a part of it. Before there even was, though, a team RWB, there was a Blaine Smith that decided to join the United States military. Bring us back to that moment and what was going on in your life. Sure. So I was uh, a kid. I grew up in southwest Florida in a little suburban town um, like a lot of other kids, and I didn't really have any plans to join the military, if I can be honest. I just um, thought I would go to college and get a job someday and in my, my search to find a good college to go to, I, I had a teacher, a chemistry teacher, who was also my golf coach in high school, and he was a retired Army officer before he became a teacher. And he really wanted me to consider uh, the service academies, West Point, Air Force Academy, Naval Academy. 
and I, I was not particularly interested. Um, but he just sort of asked me to at least look into it and kind of leave no stone unturned. And through the process, I discovered that uh, West Point in particular was a really amazing institution. It was a chance for me to get a great education. It was a chance for me to play sports in college, which I really wanted to do. Um, you know, also I could afford it. You know, I was I was a kid that grew up kind of lower middle class. I, I couldn't really afford to go to Duke or Wake Forest or or Harvard or anything. So West Point re- really represented a chance for me to be really the best college option, which is the way a 16, 17-year-old kid thinks, at least I did. Um, and then obviously through the process of being there for four years, I really began to to, to uh, appreciate and respect the military and the, and the role that it plays in our nation. And by the time I graduated, I was um, I was really ready to serve in the role of an Army officer. And I graduated in June of 2001, thinking that my service to the Army would be relatively short and uneventful. And then a couple months later, the attacks of 9-11 happened, and uh, really everything changed at that point. We've had a few guests now that were in the military when those events happened, and I always like to get their unique perspective on the difference they saw in the military between September 10, 2001 and September 12, 2001. Can you tell us about what your experience and uh, your perspective on the military was? Absolutely. And it's it's hard, almost difficult to even remember what the military was like pre-9-11 because sure. it was so, so different. But, you know, I thought at that time it was the it was the Clinton administration. The Army had drawn down to only 10 active divisions. There were some basically peacekeeping operations going on in, in places like Bosnia and Kosovo. Um, you might end up going on a one-year unaccompanied tour to Korea at some point in your career. But for the most part, it was a garrison and training army. What I mean by that is you, you went to work basically every day in a, in a starched uniform and polished boots. And you'd maybe go down to the motor pool and work on your vehicles. Maybe you'd do a little bit of training, but we weren't doing a ton. Um, you know, the pinnacle of your time as a, as a platoon leader or a company commander might be taking your unit to the National Training Center at Fort Irwin or the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk and really being tested, quote-unquote, against uh, you know a fictitious enemy in the, in the woods of Louisiana or the deserts of California. And that is really what we thought at the time, at least that's what I thought my military, my Army career would look like, would be five years of you know training, garrison, formations, PT, you know, maybe, you know, you go away for four weeks or six weeks at a time to do some training, go to the field. Uh, and then I would get out after five years and get a job somewhere with a, a company or go to grad school or whatever. And after 9-11, almost immediately, it occurred to us that it was going to be very different. And we didn't know at the time how different it would be or what exactly it would look like. But it became clear that that was not the way the world was going to work anymore and, it, you know, within a year or so, you know, fr- friends and, and myself and my unit, you're on orders to deploy for a year to go over to Baghdad. And, you know, year-long deployment was unheard of. We couldn't believe it when our brigade commander said, you know, we're going to be on orders for a year. I mean, it was it was crazy. The, the, the spouses and families were beside themselves. And then, you know, you fast forward just a few more years, and that became the norm. You're yeah. going over for 12, 15 months, come home for a year, go back for another year. And it really became the norm. But I'm here to tell you, the Army back in the 90s, you know, in pre-9-11, it was not normal to think that a unit or a soldier or an individual could spend that much time uh, in, in a combat zone uh, without having, like, a dwell cycle or some time to recover from that. And it really just became everyday practice. 
almost it's unfortunate that now meeting people that in their eight year eight year service record have four nine plus month deployments under their belt that they spent the majority of their uh, you know the people that spent more than fifty percent of their time in service deployed and in theater and it's I think it, it's really telling of what our generation really had to experience when it came to service and then especially transition. I think all of that helps to sort of explain the transition issues that um, that veterans have had. You have combat tours in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, if you're if if you'd be willing, what was your experiences on those deployments? Sure. So I deployed to Iraq in 2004. Uh, and just to frame it, um, Saddam Hussein was captured in 2003, December of 2003. I showed up in Iraq in January of 2004. And so we thought at that point, you know, we've missed it. We've missed the war. We were actually kind of disappointed, if you can believe that. You know, we thought that the combat was over. We missed the push to Baghdad. Saddam Hussein had just been captured. So the search for him was basically off at that point. And we really thought that we would spend our year over there, you know, maybe uh, protecting some convoys of currency or, or or you know important goods and materials maybe pulling static security at banks or at government ministries or you know doing traffic checkpoints that kind of thing and uh and it was we quickly realized that was not going to be the case in april of 2004 is when the shia uprising happened muqtada al-sadr sort of called on the shia population who at that point had been relatively friendly and passive to sort of rise up and and repel the americans from their occupation uh, and then you think as that as that year spins forward, you've got um, the Battle of Najaf uh, down in the summer of that year, and then the Battle of Fallujah was in November of 2004. So it became a very, very um, intense uh, and a, a sort of an exciting year in, in the history of, of the conflict, and we didn't really see any of it coming uh, at the start. So in that, in that deployment, I was a scout platoon leader in the Brigade Reconnaissance Team of the 1st Cavalry Division, and we did mostly kind of rural surveillance and reconnaissance and interdiction operations between uh, Baghdad and Fallujah. There's about 35 kilometers of rural land between the two, and that's sort of where we were at. And so we we had a very sort of riveting, exciting deployment. Uh, I had a, a couple of my soldiers were wounded, but everyone got home, um, you know, from the deployment, and we, we did a, a lot, over 200 combat patrols, uh, easy, just in the time that we were there. Uh, and then when I got home, I went to Special Forces Selection, and spent the next couple of years in the Special Forces Qualification Course in the training pipeline to earn my Green Beret and, and have the opportunity to be a, a detachment commander in the 3rd Special Forces Group. And so in that role, we deployed to Afghanistan, and I did a, a tour over there in 2009, which again was sort of an interesting transitional year to be there. In like 05, 06, 07, things had kind of quieted down in Afghanistan, not so much for the SF guys, but in, for, for the large part. Uh, but then in 0809, 2010, it really, the conflict heated back up. Um, and during that deployment, uh, my team uh, lost five of our members. So uh, three guys from my ODA, our Air Force, Special Operations, JTAC, and one of our interpreters were all killed over the course of about eight days in February of 2009. And then we stayed through about July. So it was a really challenging deployment. Um, you can imagine being on a 12-man team and seeing a third of your team killed in action and still had to continue the mission for the next five months. It was uh, extremely challenging for me as a leader, just for me as a person, as a human. It was difficult for all the families involved and the friends. And uh, yeah, so I came home in the summer of 2009 and had planned to rotate off my team, 
about that time and, and get out of the army at the end of that year, the beginning of 2010. So what was a largely successful and sort of exciting and, and mostly positive military career for me ended on a note that was particularly challenging. And I think that, uh, that, that probably had a lot to do with uh, some of the difficulties in transitioning out of the service. While you're while you're in Afghanistan, how how did those deaths impact your decision making, or at least the thought process you went through into decision making? When you say decision making, do you mean sort of like tactical and strategic decision making on the battlefield, or about like decision making around what I was going to do with my life post military, et cetera? First, okay, uh, it was it's a really great question because it was it was extremely difficult for me to sort of manage and figure out. And I, I was very fortunate to be on an extremely tight, extremely capable team of Green Berets. And so one of the first things we had to do was decide. We were, we were out at a remote fire base kind of in the middle of nowhere. And we were basically, we weren't, we weren't quite combat ineffective, but we were we were pretty, pretty ineffective as a group based on the, the severity of the casualties. And we had to decide whether or not we wanted to try to stay there and get plussed up with, with some more some more guys and kind of reconstitute our team and stay there for the next five months. Or if we wanted to rotate out of there and have another team come in and replace us and take on another mission somewhere else in the battle space or do some time to kind of recover. And uh, you know your pride and your sense of mission tells you we have to stay. We have to stay here and fight. And you know maybe you have some revenge in mind. Like There's a lot going through your head. And I talked to a couple of my, my toughest guys that I trusted the most, and we agreed that as much as that's what we wanted to do, the right thing to do for, for our team, for the mission, for our families, was to have another team rotate in and replace us and, and go back to Kandahar and spend some time training and preparing to sort of get back out on the battlefield in a different role. And we did that, and that wasn't necessarily easy, um, but we did have some time to kind of recover we had some new guys added to the team. Uh, we, you know, within a relatively short amount of time, got back out on the birds, on the trucks, back in the battle space. We conducted operations for the next, you know, five months. Some of them were pretty kinetic, so we were involved in, in firefights and things like that. Um, we, we became much more cautious, I would say, though, with the vehicles, because four, four of uh, the members of my team were killed by a massive IED that hit a Humvee on a mountain pass on a road. And uh, we, we got much more into walking. You know, if we did take the vehicles, we were very deliberate about checking culverts and ditches and, and sweeping for IEDs. And, I mean, to be completely frank, there were some guys on my team that were, that were eager to get back out, and there were some guys on my team that were not eager to get back out. And that was another leadership challenge for me was that our command uh, wanted us to get back out there and, and start, you know, functioning and, and being part of the tactical mission. Um, but, you know, there were some people within the team, I think, that would rather have just sort of stayed back and trained or helped do some other things and, and maybe not gone back out. And it was it was hard for me. Um, you know, a lot of doubt creeps in at that point. But, you know, I think ultimately we did the best we could to kind of work with what we had and the mission we had and, and sort of leave feeling that we did everything we could. Um, and, and honestly, a lot of guys were not super eager to get home because we, we weren't sure what life was going to be like. Uh, once we sort of left that tight-knit community and and had to get back on the plane and head home. So then when um, when did you finally transition out of the military? 
So we got back in July of, of 09. Within a month or so, I rotated off my team into a staff position for a while, and I began the process of of getting out of the military. I'd planned all along to get out in the beginning of 2010 once I was, uh, you know, my time being on a team and being a commander was up. And so I was effectively out at the end of that year around the holidays, probably December of 09. I think I officially was out in March, you know, because I had some terminal leave. But I, I basically took off the uniform for the last time, December 18th of 2009. So what was your what was your transition like? Tell, tell us about maybe the first three to six months after you transitioned out. Sure. So, you know, in many ways, my transition was was smooth and, and painless, and, and in other ways, it was it was very very difficult. So, uh, in terms of some of the basic things that we might think about as veterans, like employment, housing, healthcare, uh, you know, all of that went relatively smoothly. I, w- I was a West Point graduate. I had served in the Special Forces. I, I did not have a difficult time finding a job, and so I worked with some of the recruiters and headhunters, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I got out, but I just, I knew it was time for me to go and to explore some other things and be home with my family. And so I I got a job working for a big medical company in Tampa, which is relatively close to where I grew up. So I was excited about that. And it was a good job. Um, It was a good company. They took good care of me. I I figured it out relatively quickly and was, was pretty successful at it. And so I was able to make a good income and we bought a home. Um, We had my, my wife at the time and I had a baby uh, about a week after I got home from Afghanistan, so we had a new baby. So there was a lot of a lot of stress on the system. Some of it was positive stress, like a new baby, new job, getting out of the military. Some of it was negative stress, like you know I felt like I really had lost my identity. So since I was an adult, since I was 18, I had been a soldier. I'd been in the army, uh, and then I went and I became a Green Beret. And you know, that really was it was everything. It was my job. It was my community. It was my friends. It was how I identified myself as a human was I was a, I was a Green Beret. And when all that went away uh, and we moved to Florida and I didn't really have any friends and I had this new job, um, I really began to struggle with what the heck was I doing with my life? You know, what I, did, I felt like a, a severe loss of my sense of purpose. You know, I had some lingering guilt and shame maybe over my last deployment and the way that went. And so I, I began to sort of quietly struggle with... Uh, with these things. And, and it started to manifest its, itself in many of the common ways that we'll see with our veterans these days. You know, I started to become more irritable. I started to be more withdrawn. You know, I started to show less enthusiasm for things that I used to really enjoy. You know, all, all of those things were me. Um, and it really took, took me probably two or, two or more years to sort of come to the realization of, of what the heck it was that was actually bothering me because it wasn't obvious. Um, and when I finally realized, man, I've, I've really, I'm missing the military. I'm struggling here with what I'm supposed to do with my life. Uh, and it was only then that I, I started taking some positive steps toward moving in a better direction. Did you, did you experience, um, it's you admitted to having some emotional troubles. Do you feel like you experienced, uh, an actual, uh, um, something you would identify as an emotional crisis? A crisis is sort of a tricky word, um, and one of the reasons that I I didn't get help or didn't start moving in a positive direction sooner than I did was because it was, for me, the experience would be more akin to like a dull headache or, or something like that where I, I didn't really express a lot of the really acute symptoms that you might associate with having post-traumatic stress or, or combat stress or depression or any of these things. 
it was more the, you know, just the irritability, having a shorter temper, you know, stuff that's pretty textbook, but it doesn't necessarily flash across the screen as, hey, I really need to get some help or talk to somebody. And, um, and so that's, that, that was actually a, a bad thing for me. I, I wish that I had almost struggled a little bit more in more of a pronounced way earlier in the process because then I could have just sort of gotten at it. But it, you know, it took me a couple of years to sort of have the realization that you know, I am not happy. Things are not going the way they should. Um, and then once I, I, I basically had never applied for services with the VA or anything, and I, I went one day and just, you know, applied and got my ID card and then, I went and saw somebody at the post-deployment clinic at the Tampa VA here where I live and immediately started feeling better about things and, and getting things going in the right direction. But um, it, it took me a while to even realize what the heck was going on, to be honest. What – I mean, so what, were you just sort of sick of the headache and that's what prompted you to go in to your VA or was there – did something occur? So the big thing was was my marriage. Um, so I'd been married for over a decade, over 10 years, and it had a pretty, a pretty good, you know, happy, loving marriage. And uh, over during the year, year and a half, you know, first year, year and a half, two years of me being out of the military, that really started to become strained, which is odd, you know, on the surface, because you think it would be strained while you're in the service and you're gone and deploying all the time and all of that. And it would be it would be easy when you leave the service, but I'm here to tell you, and anyone any veterans out there listening, it is not easy because you you have unfair expectations of what life is going to be like. You think, oh, now everything's going to be perfect, but it's not. And so we did not have realistic expectations of what life would be like outside the military, what we were going through as individuals and collectively as a family. We just did not appreciate, I don't think, how tough it might be, and and. The, how challenging some of the things that we were wrestling with emotionally really were. And so, you know, it's, it's a much longer story, but essentially we just weren't communicating well. Um, there was resentment being built up probably on both sides and it sort of came to a head, I would say in like January of 2012. So about, about two years after I got out. And when I realized that my, my marriage was in jeopardy, which was something I, somewhere I never, ever thought I would be. I mean, it was very, odd and foreign to me to think like we're having we're having trouble this this can't be and that really smacked me in the face and at that point I just sort of said okay this can't happen we've got to figure out how to save this and I'll do whatever I need to do and that really prompted me to start you know getting off my butt and and figuring out what I needed to do to feel better so that was 2012 where did when does team red white and blue come into the picture sure so uh the organization was founded by a good friend of mine named Mike Irwin, who we served together at Fort Bragg, and he founded it in 2010. The first event was in October of 2010 at the Twin Cities Marathon. Man, it's way older than I thought it was. Yeah. Man, it's so, been around. Holy cow. Yeah. Well, it takes a long time to build sort of an overnight su- success, so to speak. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah. And so the organization was sort of founded then, and then I was, I guess, an original member, if you will. You know, Mike recruited a bunch of us to kind of come be on the team, and you know, we were running a few races and raising some money so that we could um, support wounded veterans in their community with a, a one-on-one advocate. That was kind of the original model of the organization back then. And I was eager to be a part of it because, as I stated, I was really lacking a purpose, and I, I needed something like this. And so I, I gravitated to it immediately. So I ran a couple of marathons, and I was involved and wore the T-shirt. And then um, about a year later, in the fall of 2011, uh, Mike and I were running the Marine Corps Marathon together, and he said, hey, this this thing's got some traction. 
it's got some energy behind it, but you know, no one's really running it full time. Um, you know, the model is okay, but we're not sure exactly where we need to go if we want to scale this thing. And, you know, I know that you're not super happy in your job, but I know that it's taking good care of your family and it's paying you a lot. So, you know, I don't know if you'd be interested, but maybe someday you'd want to come work on this. And I said, Ooh, I, I don't know, but keep me in mind. If, if the day comes that you can, you can hire somebody to work on this mission, uh, keep me in mind. And so a few months later in, in early 2012, he said, Hey, this is going to happen. Do you want to do this? And I said, all right. Yeah. I mean, give me, give me a few months to kind of get my ducks in a row. And this is about the same time that I was sort of just starting to go talk to a counselor at the VA and, and really turn things around personally. Uh, and so the, you know, May, June, I guess of, of 2012 is when I started working on this mission full time. I became the first employee of the organization became the executive director, and then, you know, those, these last four and a half, five years have been really, really amazing ever since. So let's talk about the value of Team Red, White, and Blue. Uh, to praise the organization just a little bit more, whenever people come to me and say, Tim, I want to give a veteran organization my money, I give them three options, and one of them is always Team Red, White, and Blue. The other one also has the word team in it, and the other one is just uh, an organization that um, that I believe in. The focus of the social and physical activity I think is so valuable because – Veterans and people in general will allow themselves to become dormant if if there's nothing forcing them to do otherwise. And the the military was so good at forcing us up at early hours to go run. It was good at forcing us to do mandatory fun, uh, you know, team activities. You're constantly training with a team. You're interacting, even if you hate that guy, you're still talking to him. And so there's 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 still there's still a mental benefit to that and i think what team red white and blue does so well is it brings people together it puts their bodies and minds both in motion physically mentally and socially and that is a huge value to the human body and mind can you speak on that a little bit more on what you've seen from the a higher level from where you are in the organization certainly so i mean you did a nice job of explaining it so thank, thank you, for you. That. but i mean i think that you know, we talk about our mission being to enrich the lives of veterans. And so enrich is a bit of a tricky word. So for our purposes, we, we've defined it. Um, and, and we think that a rich life consists primarily of what we call health, people, and purpose. And so we, we like health, people, and purpose as kind of our three bullet points. Um, because for one, we really believe that is kind of the base of the pyramid, the foundation upon which a rich life is built. Um, but we also think that we can positively affect all three of those dimensions. And so by health, we mean we want to give veterans an opportunity to improve their physical, their mental, and their emotional health. And as you mentioned, getting together and doing exercise is a great way, obviously, to improve your physical health. But we all know that physical exercise reduces stress and anxiety, depression even. So it's going to help you improve your mental and emotional health as well. And then when you do that in a group setting, it provides things like shared accountability, shared accomplishment, even shared hardship which helps you to bond with other people where you live. And which brings me to the second one, which is people. You know, in the military, you have a very tight sense of community. You have people that you can rely upon. You sort of know who's part of your tribe. And when we take the uniform off and move into these cities across the country, most of the time we don't have that anymore. And the study of positive psychology tells us that the leading indicator of overall quality of life is the quality of your personal relationships. And so through a platform like physical exercise, through social activity, through volunteerism, 
we're creating a very natural and organic way for veterans to connect with one another and to connect with other members of their community in ways that feel good to them, that naturally tend to bond them together. And now you have friends. Now you have people you can count on. Now you have a network and a community that you can belong to, which leads me to the last one, which is purpose. And so even if you have friends, even if you have your health, if you're like me and you leave the military, if you don't have something that you can identify with, something that gives you a sense of purpose and meaning in your life, it's going to leave a pretty big hole in your chest. And sometimes you can't quite put your finger on what it is that's bothering you. And if, if that's the case for you, I would say this is probably it. And so the last thing Team Red, White, and Blue does is it gives you that sense of being on another team. It gives you a new uniform to wear. It gives you something new to identify with, something new to aspire to. And that's, that's a big part of our plan and part of our vision is we want it to be aspirational. We want it to be positive. We want people to be proud of being on the team and identifying with the eagle on their chest because that's a really, really important thing. And you might get a great job when you leave the military, but it's unlikely that that job's providing that same sense of purpose. And it doesn't mean it's a bad job or that you should leave it. What it means is you should find some other things in your life, in your community that can provide you that sense of community and purpose. And, and that's really what we're there to provide. So, you know, we're not all things to all people, but I, I really believe that Team RWB, if you give it a shot, is giving most veterans most of what they're looking for. And I'm really proud of that. Yeah, one thing that really that really stands out about Team RWB compared to maybe other veteran communities and, and organizations is there is a comparatively a, a significant contribution from the civilian population. A handful of my friends here in the D.C. area that are active in the Team RWB community are civilians and non-veterans, and they're just as active not only in like joining up, but they're leading classes and they're offering other um, other experiences. So it's a really cool example of how this sort of these sort of activities and this sort of approach to uh, purpose and in what you just described um, how it can be applied how it can help bridge the divide absolutely Tim and I think this is a critical thing to point out because this for, for one thing this applies across all populations of people but for veterans in specific you know you can't integrate into your community you can't transition into a new community if the community is not there taking part. And so about 30% of our members have never served in the military. They might be family members or supporters or friends. But, you know, if, if you don't have an opportunity to spend time with the members of your, of your community and they don't have time to get to know you, then we're going to have – it's going to be difficult for us to fully transition and to, and to bridge that gap, as you said. But if you go on a run with somebody, if you do a CrossFit class with somebody, if you volunteer next to somebody – you realize pretty quickly that we have so much in common. And the fact that I wore the military uniform and you did not becomes secondary or tertiary. It comes way down the list of things that we want to talk about because we realize we have so much more in common, whether it's a love of running or a love of volunteering or our kids go to the same school or whatever the case may be. And so I'm a firm, firm believer that we need to find a way to bring our communities back together again in this country. I think much of what ails us as a country more broadly is that we've stopped listening to one another. We've stopped knowing our neighbor. We've stopped spending quality time together. And it's, it's very hard to hate somebody that you know. <laughs> it's very hard to just brush off somebody who you actually know and can empathize with. And so what we're hoping to do, big picture, long term here with Team RWB, is we hope that veterans and their families and those that support them can start showing the country what it means to be together again to be a real community, to spend time together, whether that's breaking bread or sweating or what have you. 
because we need that very dearly. And who better to lead sort of a resurgence of community and set the example than military veterans? So that's the part, you know, the underlying mission that I'm absolutely uh, most proud of is that we're, we're leading by example, and that's what veterans should be doing. One thing I've noticed about – you talked about purpose and how important it is, and it's I think that has to be – the, I think that word has described so many aspects of what it means to be a veteran, and it is a, that word is in the vernacular of every veteran's issue that we talk about. And the more and more that I think about it, the more – like, you know, why is this so – like, everybody needs purpose. And I wonder – like, I started to think about why veterans are more susceptible to – um, to becoming depressed and vulnerable or emotionally vulnerable and stuff. And I think it's because we, it's like we take the hardest drug of purpose when we join the military and then feel the withdrawals much more severely when we get out versus maybe our civilian counterparts that are sort of learning their purpose as they sort of develop into adulthood. Uh, do you think that's a fair way to explain it? I think that's a hundred percent the case, um, for most of us. And I, I've spent a little time with Sebastian Younger, and I read his most recent book, Tribe. And I think really what he, what he talks about, and, and he's not the only one, but what he, I think, describes very succinctly is that it's not so much the presence of something abnormal or bad in a veteran's life. It's the absence of what is good and what they know to be you know, sort of so, so cellular and primal that having a close-knit community, relying on the people to your left and right, like as you said, having that really big hit of purpose – um, once you have that, you've you've essentially seen behind the curtain. You know what right looks like. You've felt the way that humans most want to feel, and and the way and you've lived the way they most want to live at the DNA level. And then when that is taken away from you, you know there's going to be some repercussions to that. And it's not easy to replace that. And it's not fair to expect that you're going to replace it one for one or apples to apples. So you know my my unsolicited advice to anybody out there would be. You need to have realistic expectations of what your life is going to be like outside the military and understand that there are certain aspects of this thing that you're going to miss. And there are certain components of your life in the military that you are not going to be able to replace wholesale. You know, your new job is probably not going to be as cool as being a helicopter pilot or a marine sniper. <laughs> you know, there's not there's not a direct transfer to that. And that's okay. The, the trick is you need to have realistic expectations and go into this with your eyes wide open and then proactively – seek opportunities to refill that uh, through other means, whether that's, you know, coaching Little League, volunteering with a nonprofit, being involved in a veterans organization. You can decide what works for you, but you got to be proactive in finding these things that are going to kind of keep you, uh, you know, full of purpose and meaning because you may or may not get it from your job. That's okay, but, you know, be, be smart and, and, and look for it because you're going to need it. Absolutely. Blaine, thank you so much for your for your time and joining me on the show. Thank you for leading such a great organization as the executive director of Team Ryan Boo. And most of all, sir, thank you for your service to our country. Tim, thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. My, my pleasure to do it. I was a gunner's mate. Tonkin Golf. Logistics. Ramstein. Medic. Kandahar. As a veteran, it doesn't matter when or where you served. Infantry. Camp Pendleton or what you did. The VA has benefits that may be useful to you right now. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov.
www.va.gov. For many people, a new year brings a fresh start. You may be considering your own New Year's resolution. Even if you're not calling it that, you may be wondering how you can make a health change in your life. If Team Red, White, and Blue sounds like something you may be interested in and want to become more active physically or socially, look for an RWB chapter near you. You can visit teamrwb.org and click Find a Chapter to find one in your state. Another resolution often pursued is the decision to quit smoking. VA has several resources that can help you through this challenging process. I personally am a former smoker and I know how difficult it can be and how it doesn't always work the first time. Talk to your primary physician about the resources offered at your medical center, and I also suggest calling 1-855-QUIT-VET to talk to a tobacco counselor about a plan to quit and setting a date to quit by. They can even call you back for an accountability checkup and help you with triggers and cravings. Again, the number is 1-855-7848-838. Today's Veteran of the Day is World War II Waves veteran, Edith May Crispin Yontis. If you're unfamiliar with Waves, they were the Naval Reserve Unit for women during World War II. After completing training, Edith was sent to Washington, D.C., where she worked in the Navy Department in May 1944. After victory in Europe Day, she was relieved from active duty. Read Edith's full write-up in other Veteran of the Day posts at blogs.va.gov. That wraps up episode 11. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of options out there for entertainment, so I appreciate you spending your time here with me. If you have any feedback or questions you'd like to have answered on the show, please tweet them to us using hashtag VAPodcast or emailing us newmedia at va.gov. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter at DEPT Vet Affairs for more stories from our community. Please have a fun and safe New Year's, and we'll be back in 2017. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off.